Hello, and welcome to Objective Health. My name is Erica, and I will be your host. And joining me in the studio today is Doug and Tiffany. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to talk about running. One of the fitness fads that we see growing in popularity. But is the way that people are running today different than how we've run in the past? And it's been brought up by authors and different books on running that maybe we were born to run. Maybe our bodies are designed to be runners. Mm -hmm. So we hope that you enjoy this discussion. We hope to cover some things about feet and running shoes and earthing and just the benefits of getting outside and feeling the speed underneath your feet. Yeah. <laughs> I will disclose I'm not a runner. Well, I'm a fast walker. <laughs> I will disclose that I used to be a jogger. I was mm. never very fast. Yeah. And, uh, I think the most that I would jog is maybe like a few times a week up to like three miles at a time. And most of it was on a treadmill at the gym. And then like on the weekend, I would do an outdoor run, which was really my favorite. But it was inconvenient to go outdoors because I like to run on trails in the woods. Mm. Uh, so I didn't want to run on the street. So I just did it in the gym for a couple of days and then went outside on the weekend. I was never much of a runner. <clears throat> I went through different periods where I would try running for a while and stuff like be like, oh yeah, I got to get into shape. And I'd head out. I remember one time a friend of mine at work convinced me to run a 10K with him. And like, <clears throat> I would, you know, I knew that I had to kind of train and like actually work up to like running a 10K, but that just really didn't work out very well. I think when I was training, I only got up to about 2K. So I went from running about 2K to go trying to run 10K. And it was, it was a disaster. I ended up walking a lot of it. <laughs> so no, I've never been much of a runner myself. Although after doing some research for the show, I've actually been kind of like, you know, maybe this is something that I want, want to start trying out. Yeah, me too. But I say that about a lot of our shows. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. But uh, um, as far as the question of, are we born to run? I think it depends on the person. Mm. Some people are much better runners than other people. They can, they have better endurance. They are built better for running. Like the smaller, the lighter, the leaner you are, the longer you can go and the better body mechanics you have while you're running. Mm -hmm. And some people are just too big or they're not healthy enough to run or they have maybe some kind of foot deformities where it's not very comfortable comfortable for them to run. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it depends on the individual, but I think in general, human beings can run. Yeah. Well, and I think with our modern conveniences that we've kind of lost that art of even building up enough strength and endurance and even enjoyment to mm -hmm. do, to do it, to do running, not so much to get fit or to lose weight, to be in shape, but more to just connect with your environment outside and mm -hmm. 
build your, again, endurance and stamina to, to work up to being able to do something like Doug said, a, a 10K, but also really avoiding the, the intensity of concrete and pavement and looking at it as like this forced practice where you have to struggle through. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I've never gotten to the point with um, running where it was just doing it for the enjoyment. I don't know how many people actually do. I think, I think it's usually people are doing it as out of a sense of obligation, at least in, in our society. That's how, how I kind of see it. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I think that there is a sizable amount of people who do it just because they like it. Like when I did it, I mean, it was hard at first and it can be hard at differing points while you're actually running. But then at some point, at least in my own experience, you get to a point where if you push through that first part, like, oh, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Mm. And then you actually get into a groove and you, they call it the runner's high. And I think that I've kind of experienced it, but it wasn't like I was like bouncing off the walls and like, oh, this is like fantastic, but you kind of get into this zone where you're not really thinking about if you're tired or not. Like mm. I would listen to music while I was running and you kind of go with the beat of the music and you're, it's kind of hard to describe, but it is enjoyable. I thought it was enjoyable. And the fact that so many people do it has to attest to that somewhat, that they think that it's fun. I do think that it's fun. You're up, you're moving, you're bouncing around, you're outside a lot of the time. Um, I think it's fun. Mm. Well, you were saying, Doug, before the show that you had some uh, ideas or notes on the benefits. Yeah, well, not specifically about running, but like just kind of exercise in general. Um, I watched a video recently that uh, is on a channel called What I've Learned, which is a great channel, by the way. Everybody should subscribe to it if they have a chance to or just go over and watch it. And he had he had one video that's called Why Exercise is So Underrated. And he kind of talks about how exercise, like it's almost like the PR campaign for exercise has been kind of poorly executed and talked about really the only thing you ever hear about for exercise is that it's good for the heart and that it helps you to lose weight. But the problem is that good for the heart is kind of vague and it doesn't really tell you much. And a lot of people who are exercising aren't really thinking about their heart health because they're younger. Um, heart health isn't really something that people start to consider until you know, later in life, uh, generally. And the problem is that it's not great at weight, like for weight loss, especially in the old model of things where you're kind of looking at, uh, oh, I need to exercise, I need to burn this many calories. And if I burn this many calories and I eat this many calories, then I will lose weight. That doesn't work. It never, it never works. So in a way it's kind of exercise has been missold to us um, that a lot of the benefits of exercise actually have to do with the brain. Um, I mean, you do increase, uh, you know, exercise helps to increase muscle mass. And if you increase your muscle, you're increasing the amount of mitochondria you have and the mitochondria will burn energy. And that is kind of a way for uh, losing weight. But the advantages go a lot beyond that. Um, it improves insulin sensitivity. Um, it uh, The brain is kind of designed, he was saying, for um, allowing us to produce these adaptable and complex movements. In fact, there's, he, he quotes one um, guy who 
and I don't remember if he's a psychologist or what he is, but anyway, he said that um, the entire reason that we have a brain is to produce these adaptable and complex movements. Um, and all these other things that we throw on top of why it's good to have a brain don't actually apply. I'd have to look more into the guy's argument. I don't know if that's true, but th this is what the guy was saying. Um, but exercise is shown to help with learning. Um, it uh, decreases stress. It drastically reduces anxiety, improves mood, um, and strengthens focus to the point where um, in some studies that they've done, people are actually throwing out their ADHD medication because it strengthens their focus so much. And there's been a number of studies that have shown that students who have um, higher fitness scores actually have higher test scores. So it's like the, the old um, trope about kind of the, the smart guy being the uh, one who's not very physically fit or physically able, the kind of measly nerd guy isn't actually true. Or at least, you know, obviously there's going to be outliers, but in general, um, the people who are physically fit are more likely to have better brains. Um, and there was one study that I thought was really interesting. Uh, it was done in 2007, and they had the subjects do high-intensity exercise before um, doing a, a vocabulary test or vocabulary learning exercise. And they found that the people who had done the high-intensity exercise before learned the vocabulary 20% faster. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of this has to do with uh, something that's called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And they it's, it's commonly said that this is uh, basically fertilizer for the brain. It improves the function of neurons, encourages their growth, strengthens and, and protects them. Um, there was one 2013 study where uh, it was in a journal called uh, the Journal of Sports, Science and Medicine. And it showed that 20 to 40 minutes of aerobic exercises increased BDNF in the blood by 32%. So... I've got more here, but I think that kind of gives the, the idea that, um, you know, exercise, I mean, it is very good for the physical body, obviously, but I think um, a lot of the benefit of doing this kind of exercise, like running, is often a brain thing mm -hmm. and a mood thing. Yeah, and it's not as if you have to run marathon lengths. You don't have to run no. like 10 miles every day in order to get this. I mean, there were studies out that say if you run just a few minutes or just a mile or so you can still get benefits from from the exercise mm -hmm. i think a lot of it has to do with intensity it's mm -hmm. like you know if you're if you're running i mean running in general is a pretty intense exercise yeah. so i think that if you're doing running and you're not just kind of like you know piddling along uh you're gonna get some benefit from it if you're raising your heart rate you're sweating you're panting I mean, that's, that's what the benefit's all about. Well, you really see this in children. And I know for the three of us, you know, we grew up in an age where there was not so much technology. So going outside and I mean, we could run for hours mm -hmm. and play and jump. And, mm -hmm. and when you talk about the brain benefits, I mean, I think that's why in schools now we see so many issues with children learning because they're cutting PE programs. They're, the they're kids, cutting recess. At yeah, lunchtime. the kids don't yeah. have that ability at first thing in the morning to just run like mad men and <laughs> mad yeah. children and and kind of burn a lot of that, um, you know, angst out and and then sit down and be able to actually retain the information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and even if you can't run for whatever reason, there's still benefit to be having just from walking, especially if it's outdoors. But mm -hmm. anything that you can do to get moving is better than just sitting around all day doing nothing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, there was one video that we watched for this uh, by uh, Larry Maurer, who's a podiatrist. And he said, we don't need to move to survive. We need to move to survive well. And I think that that was uh, an important point. It's kind of like, you know, you can live, like you can survive without moving. You know, you can basically just be kind of a slob, sits around, doesn't do much, never really gets off the couch, and you'll live. But in order to survive well, you need to move. And he mm -hmm. was saying that kind of running, he was recommending running because it increases quality of life, et cetera. Yeah, if you can improve your physical functioning, especially as you get older and maintain your strength so you're not falling down or you can get up off of out of a chair without having to have somebody help you get up, you can bend over and tie your shoes and you can uh, carry out your household activities without a lot of strain and struggle. I mean, everybody wants to live that way. No one wants to get old and feeble and you know, just be uh, confined to their house or to their bed sometimes. So whatever you can do to keep your functioning up is beneficial. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, kind of like what you were saying, Doug, there's a, an article or a book called The Art of Tracking, and it's about the Bushman of the Kalahari. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how um, running was the superpower that made us human, which means it's a superpower that all humans possess. And again, I think we have just become sedentary beings. And that's why we're seeing such a rise in all kinds of inflammatory-based illnesses. Because as you've both been saying, we're not moving like we used to. Mm -hmm. And you were saying you had, like, you had a, a couple of notes on what these kind of features of humans were, like why he was saying we're kind of born to run. Yeah, so th there is a, a book I read recently called Born to Run, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes, and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen. And it's uh, by Christopher McDougall. was written back in 2009. And um, in there, he, he has a lot of really helpful information, kind of what inspired us to do a show on this topic. And they were talking about... Uh, why humans started running initially and there was a university of uh, utah biologists that was starting to look at the differences um, in human anatomy as opposed to animal anatomy and you know how humans can run long distances and not drop down and die or mm -hmm. or or have fatigue and um one of them, well, there's 26 different features, and I don't know if we'll go through every single one, but one thing about humans is that they can breathe and run at the same time, so we don't need to stop for respiration, but uh, four-legged animals, you know, like deer and kuzu and all these different four-legged, what do they call them, ruminants, they, they can sprint, but then they have to stop and rest. Mm -hmm. And some of the other um, features, anatomical features that helps human run are um, skull features. So uh, <clears throat> the skull features help prevent overheating, as I was saying. Um, 
So we're the only animal that has sweat glands on our entire body so we can respire and let go of internal heat where animals do not have that feature. They have to pant. Yes. So they can't <laughs> pant and run at the same time. That's why they need to stop. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then veins carry cool blood um, passing near the carotid arteries that helps <laughs> cool our body down. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing is a more balanced head with a flatter face. Um, we have teeth and a short snout, um, but this shifts the center of mass. So it's easier to balance your head when you're bobbing up and down and running. Mm -hmm. um, a ligament that runs from the back of the skull down the neck called the thoracic vertebrae, and it acts as kind of a shock absorber. Hmm. So it helps the arms and the shoulders counterbalance the weight of the head. Um, we have a narrow trunk, waist, and pelvis. This creates more skin surface for our size, permitting greater cooling. Um, the connection between the pelvis and the spine is shorter and longer relative to the body size in humans and their ancestors, providing more stability and shock absorption. And we have huge human buttocks <laughs> so they were saying that Speak um, for yourself <laughs> well he was talking about how if you look at apes they don't really have buns and so uh, the human buttocks are uh, muscles that are critical for stabilization and running because they connect the femur the large bone in each upper leg to the trunk and because people lean forward at the hip during running, the buttocks keep you from pinching over on your nose and basically eating dirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have long legs. Uh, the arrangement of our bones in the human foot uh, creates a stable or stiff arch that makes the whole foot more rigid so hu the human runner can push off the ground more efficiently and utilize ligaments on the bottom of the feet as springs. Mm. And one last one, humans um, evolved with large heel bone for better shock absorption, as well as shorter toes and a big toe that is fully drawn in toward the other toes for better pushing off during running. Hmm. And there's a lot more in there. I'm, um, you know, he wrote again, a paper called it was pu published in Nature Magazine, How Running Made Us Human, Endurance Running Let Us Evolve to Look the Way We Do. Hmm. That's really interesting. It's, it's like, it doesn't seem, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that we were so kind of built to run, that these features are, are like that are so specific for running. It kind of just seemed like running was something that we, you know, we could do, but it wasn't, wasn't like our main feature or anything like that. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that either. I mean, I think we're built for locomotion, but if mm. it's running or walking, I don't know if it makes much of a difference. I mean, it's all locomotion, but at any rate, I mean, he made a good argument for it. So here's a question then. Why is it that that... Like, it seems like a lot of people are kind of put off from running and there's a lot of warnings out there um, because of the prevalence of injuries. Like people are always hurting their knees, hurting their ankles, you know, this and that. So if we were like built to run, 
why does it seem like it's so easy to actually hurt yourself? Well, it's the shoes. <laughs> it is the shoes. shoes. Well, you know, it's interesting just even reading this book because I work in a fitness center. And so, of course, you know, I see people on the treadmill all the time and you can't help but look at how people are running and what they're doing with their body in the process of it. Hmm. And I think, as we discussed earlier, that we know it's good for us, but I don't think we're ever taught properly how to run like as kids we kind of naturally have that inborn instinct to move and use our body in that way and then some point we lose it or mm -hmm. we we don't have input on things to change and a lot of this book was just about that like how you know olympic swimmers are taught how to swim lifters are taught how to lift properly any sport you see, you know, fighters are taught a skill, but runners aren't really taught about the mechanics to make them efficient mm. and to not overexert energy. And, and it's interesting because I said at the beginning of the show, I am not a runner, partially because every time I see people running, especially on the side of the road, when you drive by them, they just look like they're miserable. And so <laughs> I, I was really like, wow, that doesn't look very enjoyable. Yeah. They're just slumping along with this like grimace on their faces. Uh, I probably looked that way at some point because <laughs> it, it is difficult. It's quite a strain, but I think uh, maybe your average runner who just decides, Oh, I'm just going to, know get some shoes and go out run so I can get in shape or lose weight I think that they would be better served if they actually did what more professional runners did I think that those professional runners actually do learn a lot more about running mechanics and what yeah. to do like how to breathe how to move their feet how to position their bodies and their arms and all that but your average person probably is not privy to that knowledge but I've seen people like in the gyms or on the treadmill, like uh, people who actually hold on to the sides of the treadmill while they're running or they're walking, like, oh, what are you doing? Or people <laughs> over and like slamming their feet down. It's like, it just doesn't look very enjoyable or comfortable. But I think a big part of this is that people, like back in the olden days, I mean, however far back you go into history, we didn't wear shoes. You know, I mean, running shoes didn't come out until the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So when, when we were running as children, we were running in a more natural and proper way where you're not landing on your heel with the heel strike. You're landing like on your midfoot or the ball of your foot. You're pushing off with your toes. Your toes have room to spread. And now with these cushioned running shoes, you have this big uh, cushioned heel, which makes it more likely that you would strike down with your heel. And that puts a lot of force on your joints, your knees, your ankles, your hips, and that can be a big source of injury. So if you're doing that mile after mile after mile for years, I mean, it's no wonder that people end up with plantar fasciitis or heel spurs or shin splints and torn yeah. tendons. Yeah. I used to get shin splints actually when I was yeah I got them too. Running and stuff I like definitely that. was a heel striker. Yeah, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, so I'm trying well, to rehabilitate myself now. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I mean, it's it's funny because you know it it seems like 
the idea that we would have these shoes with all this padding and all this kind of stuff when the foot has clearly been you know designed to do what we need it to do perfectly so it's mm -hmm. like why would we like wrap it up in in this like all this padding and all this stuff it's like you know putting a cast on it or something like that so it doesn't get hurt it's like no we've been doing this for like millions of years the feet yeah. know what they're doing I think a lot of this whole shoe business is a lot of uh, like gimmicks involved in it because the first shoes that they came out with were basically just flat. It gave you a little bit of cushion, but one wasn't all these bells and whistles and like all this. They put like extra cushion like on the on the front of the shoe. Like I've seen shoes that have like a big lump on the front, like it's supposed to encourage you to land there, but then you have this big heel too. Mm. So I think that as the business grew and they wanted to get more uh, consumers, they started adding this and that, or that cushion and this cushion, but really uh, it hasn't made any difference in the amount of injuries. I think injuries have actually gone up, even if the shoes have improved. And I use that air quotes. Yeah. But yeah, they actually haven't improved like this gigantic shoe. <laughs> <laughs> this monster. Yeah. Yeah, They're look at the sole on that. Yeah, you, you can't feel anything. Um, if you were to compare like a traditional shoe with all the cushioning versus just your bare feet or something called a minimalist shoe or barefoot running shoe, you're mm. more aware of how your foot is landing what the ground feels like underneath your feet. You're not heel striking because if you tried to heel strike barefoot or in a barefoot running shoe, it really hurts. Yeah, you would not do that. It's not a natural way to run at all. Yeah, yeah. if you have all that cushion there, it kind of takes away from your, your senses, your foot mm -hmm. senses, I guess. I don't know if there's a proper word for it, but. <laughs> foot senses, yeah. 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 Well, should we? like play that video clip now because it kind of yeah. deals with the uh the the kind of the shoe versus the barefoot running i've been a runner all my life and i've run with shoes pretty much all that time uh, but as a result of this research i thought i should try barefoot running and i actually have to say i really enjoyed it it's been a lot of fun Humans have been running for at least two million years. And of course, for most of that time, humans were running barefoot. And modern running shoes were actually only invented in the mid-1970s. So we have this idea now that, you know, in order to run, you need, you need, you know, all you need are a pair of shoes. It's a common statement, right? Well, actually, that's not true. You don't need shoes. You just need feet. There's probably two stages in the evolution of the foot. Initially, the foot evolved for walking and also to climb trees. But at some point in human evolution, we think around two million years ago, there was a big environmental change in Africa. And the woodlands started disappearing and the savannas started growing. And at that point, new foods started appearing. And, and one of them, of course, was, was meat. There were all these ungulates out there on the grasslands. And in order to become a hunter, I think humans started to evolve running. And what we're good at is at running at, running at speeds that make animals gallop. And if you do that in the heat for a long period of time, that animal will overheat because quadrupeds cannot pant and gallop at the same time. So imagine you're chasing a gazelle or a kudu or some big animal. If you can chase that animal, make that animal gallop for 10 to 15 minutes, you've got dinner. 
we wanted to figure out how people ran uh, without shoes uh, before the shoe was invented because people have been running for millions of years and we're really, uh, we weren't really sure what, what happens when, when barefoot runners run and how well they can, they can do it. So we started bringing in um, habitual barefoot runners into the lab to see, just to see how they use their bodies and how they use their feet. What we discovered was that uh, barefoot runners run often very differently from the way your typical shod runner uh, runs. So the shoe has got a big heel and it's designed to make it very comfortable to land on your heel and so a lot of shod runners land on the heel right? and then they bring the rest of their foot down. So when you land again on your heel, your, your body comes to a dead stop, there's a lot of mass, and so there's an impact, there's a, there's a, there's a rapid force. It's, it's like somebody hitting you on the heel with a hammer about two to three times your body weight. So when we started bringing barefoot runners into the lab, we discovered that they, they didn't like to do that, right? They typically landed on the front of their foot, pretty horizontally, not, 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 not like that, but just a little bit, so that they, they land underneath the, the heads of the fourth and fifth metatarsal often and then they bring the heel down. And when we ran them over force plates, we discovered that they didn't have that big spike, that impact transient that is typically associated with a heel strike. So what barefoot runners tend to do is by landing more towards the front of the foot and then letting the heel come down afterwards. And what that does is it converts the energy that would otherwise be a dead stop, right? A vertical deceleration of the leg. It, it converts that into rotational energy. You can understand the difference with the following very commonplace observation. Imagine dropping the pen onto the ground but falling vertically down. That's like your heel strike where your entire leg strikes the ground and comes to a stop and it's a big impact for them. On the other hand, if you're a four-foot striker, then you can think of it like the pen landing at an oblique angle where it hits the ground and it doesn't come to a dead stop but starts rotating. So not all the energy, kinetic energy of the pen has to be absorbed by the impact. Some of it gets just transferred from moving down to rotation and so the impact forces are much smaller in a four-foot strike compared to a heel strike. A lot of runners get injured um, and they, what they get typically uh, often are, are repetitive stress injuries. And so one hypothesis is that that impact caused by landing on the heel which causes that big impact transient could be injurious and it's associated with pain in the, in the soft tissues at the bottom of the foot, um, it's associated with shin splints, um, it may cause some other kinds of injury. So our hypothesis is that individuals who don't land on their heel but avoid those big impacts by landing on the front of their foot may be less susceptible to those kinds of repetitive stress injuries. So we've been studying barefoot runners now for quite a while and we went to Africa and we looked at people who've never worn shoes and they've been running 20 kilometers a day and I just decided I had to try running barefoot myself. So I 
last summer actually I was running one day and I just decided to take my shoes off and I, I found it was just incredibly fun and uh, since then I've actually started running barefoot frequently and actually I really love it, it feels great. I've uh, stopped uh, heel striking and I now have become a four foot striker and, and uh, it's fun. Running in a pretty urban environment in the snow on in the, the snow. concrete. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that he described it as fun too, because I don't think of running as being fun. So maybe it's just because I've had shoes on. Yeah, so, I th I think it can be fun, but I tried my own experiment. So I got some uh, barefoot running shoes yesterday, and they hmm. say that if you're used to running in regular cushioned shoes you kind of ease into it to give your your feet the muscles in your feet some a chance to adapt but of course i <laughs> i had to jump right into it and try it like this guy did so um i was much more aware of how my foot landed i could not land on my heel because that would have been too painful. But I didn't want to do barefoot running either because it's kind of gravelly where I lived. Mm. So I did a little bit of jogging just to warm up and then I did some sprints in the grass and it was fine. Mm. You know, it, it didn't hurt me at the time that I was running in the grass or sprinting in the grass, which for me sprinting is certainly not Olympic level. I'm pretty slow. <laughs> It was still as fast as I could go. And uh, I felt my feet were, the muscles in my feet were a little tight afterward, but it wasn't like painful. I just felt like my feet got a good workout. So I'm going to keep trying to do it just to see what happens and see what changes occur in my feet. Yeah, I'm thinking about that, <clears throat> about trying that as well. And it's interesting because you talk about changes in the feet. <clears throat> Apparently, some people talk about um, actually having some structural changes by doing this barefoot running or even just being barefoot um, walking and things like that. Because, um, you know, instead of the foot kind of being encased in this shoe, it's like you're using all the muscles properly for the feet. And in fact, there was even a, a study done in India where they compared um, the children who were barefoot, because apparently it's quite common there for children to go barefoot, but kind of the upper and um, upper classes of kids will wear shoes right from day one. So they were able to compare the two of them. And there was like a huge difference in the amount of flat feet. The, the kids who were wearing shoes all the time had flat feet, whereas the mm -hmm. kids who were bare feet didn't. And I guess it makes sense if you if you think that, you know, the the arch of the foot, um, if it's not being kind of used properly, um, those muscles are not getting used properly, then it's going to flatten out some because it's just like there's the flexion isn't happening as much. So, Damien, there's one image actually of the of the footprint of the guy. And this was a guy who kind of did his own experiment where he did his footprint. So, yeah, on the left there. Um, I think I think it's the left. I hope that my image isn't reversed. But anyway, the, on the one side is the you can see it's kind of like a full flat foot on the ground. And as the guy continued to kind of barefoot run, and I don't remember off the top of my head how long a time period this was, but you can see that on the other side you can actually see a very defined arch. So I think that like barefoot running actually will improve the structure of the feet, which mm 
which is one of the reasons that I want to do it actually, because I have notoriously flat feet. Like I used to be called table feet <laughs> because they're so flat. So yeah. I'm thinking that actually giving this a try, maybe it might improve um, my feet, which, you know, it's not just an aesthetic thing. Like if you're, if your feet are flat, then you're not, really walking properly and stuff and it can lead to other problems like I've had issues with my knees before and lower back and I think it all comes down to kind of how you're standing and your posture and everything and I think you, the shape of your feet and how good they are um, or how proper they are I think can definitely make make a difference yeah and you see this with people that wear shoes all the time how um, their toes start to get squished together in the top mm. And they very rarely like spread their toes or manipulate the feet in such a way where, you know, we have 22 or 23 bones in our foot. So I think people, when they're walking all the time, they're not thinking about how all of that is keeping them upright and keeping stability and all the different things that are going on with the feet. And you have all these nerve endings at the bottom of your feet. So I think it was you, Doug, that were saying, and even Tiffany, that when you walk barefoot, if if you're tender footed, as it's called, you know, you, you're not used to not having that protection. It takes a little bit of time to kind of adjust to all the stimulation that's happening on the bottom of your feet. And um, it can be shocking, mm -hmm. you know, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But even just, you know, getting home from work and taking your shoes off and even just wearing socks and experimenting with the toe ball and the inner heel and the outer heel and spreading your toes and feeling your range of motion because there's such a range of motion. And again, you see this in children when they're learning to walk. If they're free to learn to walk without shoes, like my sister used to walk on her tiptoes all the time and that was kind of how she would run and walk and then eventually she started to use the other part of her feet. But again, we're, we're not exposed to that. We, we live in an environment where you get up, you put them on, you wear them all day, you wear them at home and maybe at the end of the day you take your shoes off to go to bed, but that's about <laughs> it, you know? Yeah. But in cultures where they don't have shoes and they don't wear shoes very much, Hawaii is another place like that. Children were never even required to wear shoes to school. And if they did, they wore like a little slipper or a flip-flop. But their feet were, like you said, uh, real wide and flat, but they could run on gravel and hard objects. I mean, my kids used to run on top of their Legos and, ah, <laughs> you know, I mean, but, um, you know, we just become soft, yeah. soft in the sense that we, we, oh, I don't want to do that. But I think you, you can start to manipulate that relationship there and develop a little bit tougher soul by just mm -hmm. doing it a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. And look at that image there of the, the difference between the, the feet of a modern businessman versus the feet of a barefoot runner. Yeah, look at how scrunched up the toes are. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Well, and this kind of gets into the whole topic of grounding too, of mm -hmm. again, being isolated from the earth in every environment and, and not getting the benefits of, you know, the earth's energetic field, I believe they call it the Schumann's resonance, mm -hmm. and how you can even heal inflammation in the body by just taking off your shoes and standing in grass or uh, mm -hmm. dirt 
or even um, going in a stream and putting your feet on rocks. Mm-hmm. I know David said we we have some images of some injuries that were yeah. healed because of this idea of um, grounding. Yeah. So yeah, what it basically is is that um, the um, by being in contact with the earth, like the the earth is negatively charged. So by actually having contact with the earth, we will pull up some electrons from that. And those act as antioxidants in our body. And the idea is that our body is actually, you know, designed to, to make use of those electrons, um, that, that we actually function uh, much better that way. So there was um, a, a couple of uh, studies done, or I mean, they weren't necessarily studies, but they were kind of like a case study kind of things where um, that show... Um, the difference between like or the the healing potential of it and damien there's one that's just called figure one that um if you could bring that up um and it just kind of shows the uh the kind of the healing now this is a photograph um of an 80 84 year old diabetic woman um and she had this wound on her ankle um and it wasn't uh it wasn't healing are you able to find it, Damien? Or yeah, there we go. So at the top there, you can see um, it wasn't healing. Like she had it for like a long time, but then um, she started doing this um, this grounding earthing treatment. Um, and uh, the second image there was taken after one week, so you can see it's already starting to to heal, um, and then. The last one's after two weeks. So that was just two weeks of doing this this earthing, like getting the feet in contact um, with the earth uh, for 30 minutes a day. Um, she also, um, actually, sorry, I think that this one was actually, um, she was using a, like a, a patch. So it's kind of like electrodes, having electrodes attached to the skin. So what they basically do is they take an electrode and they tape it onto the skin. And then the other end is actually put to the earth. So it's like, you know, the convenience of being grounded without actually having the inconvenience of having to go outside. Um, And a lot of these diabetic ulcers can last for years. Yeah. And they're constantly getting treated for them and the sores don't heal. And it's amazing that just after a couple of weeks that her her ulcer got better. I mean, people have had their uh, feet or toes amputated because of ulcers that won't heal or ulcers that turn gangrenous so having this knowledge is good yeah totally free it's free yeah that's exactly it it's free a prescription or uh insurance (laughs) the image that's there now is a guy who had a uh, bike injury he was actually in the tour de france and had some kind of injury where the gear wheel like dug into his leg or something like that and you can see in the top image there he's got the electrodes and they put them on either side of the wound and let me just see here so it was like it's this is like a rapid recovery from a serious wound um uh so the grounding patches were put on um so in the second image there, it's one day after the image or after the injury. And 
the last image is two days after the injury. So it's only like a two day progression there, but you can see that there's quite a bit of healing in that two days. And apparently the guy was healed so much that he could go back and, um, and do the race and finish the race. I guess the Tour de France is a number of days or something like that. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. So anyway, just, just from being in contact with the ground, um, can accelerate healing and there's i mean there's other advantages to it as well people talk about sleeping better um just being like you know a lot of aches and pains going away and things like that so there's a lot of uh if you if our viewers are interested in all you can do some research in, on earthing um because there's actually a lot of advantage to it and you can compare it with you can uh, combine it with uh, barefoot running and get the benefits of both things the exercise and being in touch with the earth and it can also really help with anxiety mm -hmm. so again you know being in a fast-paced world wearing shoes being around wi-fi and emfs and technology and stuff i mean just taking a 10 or 15 minute walk even in your own lawn or around your area can really help with releasing a lot of that angst and pent-up energy that you store in your body from you know a high stress environment and you know really eliminating the need to find pharmaceutical relief mm -hmm. but just the practice of doing it and again you don't have to be you know a barefoot runner that's going to run ultra marathons or anything <laughs> like that but you can just kind of start slow and steady and build up from there yeah, even just piddling around in your garden, you're grounding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also think there's probably an advantage to it as far as like getting in contact with like the microbiome of the planet, like actually, you know, having your skin in contact with the earth and like all of the microorganisms and things like that. I know some people might get kind of icked out by that idea, but I think that it's actually very important to have that kind of contact and get the the your the, the bacteria of your native environment kind of mixing on you. I mean, you're going to get bacteria on you anyway, but I th I think, you know, being in touch with the ground is probably They actually said, I remember reading that one um piece of advice for um getting rid of jet lag was to once you got off the plane, go and find some grass of where you've landed and walk mm -hmm. on it barefoot because it gets you you know on the for the one thing you're you're kind of um grounding yourself and you know taking on some electrons because you've just been up in the air and exposed to kind of all that radiation that's at the um the being at a high altitude um exposes you to but also just getting in touch with the frequency of the place that you're in and getting some of that native bacteria on you it's just kind of like it's a way to kind of immerse yourself in that environment so you're not still carrying the previous environment with you or the the environment from the airplane or whatever it is it's kind of a way of kind of just instantly kind of synchronizing yourself to the place that you've um traveled to mm -hmm. i've never tried so it though about, like back to the whole running aspect what about the people who say that you know chronic cardio is not good for you and what about all these marathoners who drop dead at the finish line yeah because <laughs> that does happen but i don't think is as common as people think it is i think because of the nature of it 
like these people are presumed to be extra healthy and you have all these televised marathons. So if you see somebody like having a heart attack is gonna be shocking uh, if the marathon is on TV, but it, uh, it really doesn't happen that much. But of course there's the, the original marathoner, uh, Philippides, or yeah, I think that's how you say his name. Hmm. Uh, he ran from Marathon to Athens in 490 BC just to deliver news of a military victory. And once he got there, he dropped dead. Yeah, so, or so the story goes. Yeah, so the story goes. That's where word marathons came from. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think like between 2000 and 2009, there were 28 people who died during the marathon or like right after within 24 hours of a marathon. And which is not that much. I mean, people drop dead of heart attacks all the time and just have 28 within nine years is not a huge deal. But considering that these people are supposedly healthy, it makes you wonder. And there was a doctor who kind of looked into this and he said that <clears throat> these people, like some of them, especially the younger ones under 40, they might've had some genetic disorder of the heart um, called hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And that's where one area of the heart becomes very thick and it doesn't pump out as much blood as it should. Mm. It has trouble ejecting blood. And if you are in the middle of a race, usually like these deaths happen like after uh, mile 20 or so. And it's very strenuous. Your blood pressure is high, your, your heart rate is high. And if that strain is already on your heart and plus your heart has this defect where it can't pump a lot, uh, that can cause, you know, your heart to stop. And then a lot of times during these marathons, uh, you have the issue of dehydration mm. or hyponatremia where you have low sodium and that can cause low blood volume. So if all those things are present. It can make it more likely that if you have this defect that you could die. But the people who are over 40 and they're marathoners and they might uh, just have a heart attack just from overuse or stress, or, you know, maybe there's some other underlying issue. So it's not like super common. And I don't think that it's a reason, like, of course, like all of us should not be running a marathon, but if you're going to run just, you know, a couple miles or something like that, just for general exercise. I don't think that it should dissuade you that there are some marathoners who died after running over 20 miles. In two hours. Yeah, I think, I think it has, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because there's, there's, there is kind of the perspective now where it's like, you know, because um, a great deal of the benefit of um, exercise can be had in this short period of time doing the high, uh, high intensity interval type training, um, you know, like the CrossFit or the MoveNet or whatever, like these these kind of very intense um, uh, that are usually a combination of both cardio and um, um, like weights, essentially. Um, they say that, you know, they that compared to kind of like um, the endurance exercise apparently is a lot a lot better for you because it's kind of like a quick hit of this um, intense exercise rather than this long drawn out process. And I can kind of see the point because, 
especially with things like marathon. I mean, you see the people who are running marathons, like a lot of times they look kind of emaciated. And I think that's because they're suffering from like protein wasting. It's like their body has such high energy demands and it's not possible to eat enough of those gels to actually keep it in carbohydrate long enough. So it ends up kind of catabolizing the the protein, like the muscle. Um, so, but then again, I mean, with this whole born to run thing and you hear about like these, uh, the, these tribesmen able to like run down their prey to death. I mean, obviously there's something to it and there's this, you know, the, the tribe in, in Mexico who's running like 150 miles, like 200 miles at a time. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's curious. I mean, I wonder if there is like a genetic component to it or if, um, you know, there's something about these people who are dropping dead that they're, they just weren't like designed to actually run these marathons or they're not eating right or, or, or something. Yeah. Or they're pushing themselves to extremes. So as Doug was saying, the, the tribe that he's talking about, and I'm going to mispronounce their name, I apologize <laughs> to not offend any, Taru Hamuras, they're, they're actually Native American, or na not Native, Native Mexicans. And they live in the Copper Canyons of Chihuahua, Mexico. And it's a very kind of dense and crazy, you know, unsafe environment for running for sure, um, with extreme heats up to 110 degrees during the middle of the day. And like Doug was saying, they can run up to 50 miles in one day or 100. And they start learning as children. And again, rocky terrain, rivers, not a flat asphalt setting at all. And in uh, Born to Run, they talk a lot about how they are not necessarily um, athletes or, um, you know, great runners necessarily, but they're more athletes. And uh, I have a quote from the book that really sends the message home about how them being great athletes are very different than being great runners. And they talk about how runners are assembly line workers. They become good at one thing, moving straight ahead at a steady speed and repeat that motion until overuse fritzes out their machinery. They say athletes are like Tarzans and Tarzan swims and wrestles and jumps and swings from vines. He's strong and explosive. And um, you never know what Tarzan's going to do next. And it's probably why he doesn't get hurt. But um the author says that your body needs to kind of be shocked, become resilient. And maybe that's why they are so resilient because of the extreme conditions that they're growing up in. But that um, if you follow the same routine, your muscular skeletal system quickly figures out how to adapt and go on autopilot. Mm. And um, mm. But if you surprise it with new challenges, you leap over a creek, you commando crawl under a log, you sprint till your lungs are bursting, scores of nerves and uh, ancillary muscles are suddenly electrified into action. And so for the Teromura, that's just their daily life. They step mm. into the unknown every time they leave the cave and because they never know how fast they'll have to sprint after a rabbit or how much firewood they'll have to haul home, how trickly, tricky the climb will be during a winter storm, they're faced with these challenges and they adapt. And what's so amazing about them, and there's videos on YouTube where you can watch this woman 
Taramura mm -hmm. running, what was it, 50 mile ultra marathon, they call it. And they just, they just have a steady pace. They have a smile on their face. They just keep moving forward. And she was wearing a dress. <laughs> <laughs> and a little pair of plastic, like slipper-like sandals. Mm -hmm. And um, they're just phenomenal, phenomenally built for endurance. Now, do they live in an area of high altitude? Um, well, it's the Copper Canyons. I don't know if it's super high altitude, but they are going up 1,000, 2,000 feet peaks in their run. Mm -hmm. And they have a whole strategy on how to run up mountains, how to run down mountains, how to breathe, which was a big one. Like if you're breathing in and out your nose, you're maintaining a, a steady pace. You're going to go farther for longer mm -hmm. than if, say, you're a sprinter. Mm. You know, and, and you exert all that energy. So they're built for sustaining. Well, a lot of researchers who are looking into these marathoners and ultra marathoners, like uh, if you look at uh, people in East Africa, like Kenya or Ethiopia, they live in, and train in higher altitudes. So uh, they're wondering if that gives them an advantage, which I think that it does, but I think there's other things that play into it. Um, so if they're in high altitudes, they have um, more red blood cells that can deliver more oxygen to their body, which can increase their endurance and their stamina. But also, like if you look at certain cultures like the Turhuramanu Indians, it's like running is built into their entire lifestyles. And like over in Ethiopia and Kenya, like long distance running is a huge thing over there. It's like a cultural thing. And the people who uh, are really good at it and win marathons, uh, they're looked at as kind of like rock stars are looked at here in the U.S. So there's this entire culture built around it, like the same in Jamaica with the sprinters. There's an entire culture built around it. They start running like in grade school or younger and like at the high school track meets, they have these huge stadiums filled with people for high school track. So, you know, there's a certain cultural aspect to it. They haven't actually been able to find like anything genetically that sets people apart. Um, like, like maybe for the East Africans, they are built like they're lighter and they're leaner and that can make you a better runner. But as far as genetics goes, they haven't been able to pinpoint anything definite that says that these people are genetically gifted and that's why they run so well. I think there's a lot of factors that play into why they do it. And plus, you know, considering the, the standard of living as far as income, like if you win a race and you win like a couple thousand dollars in a smaller race and like some of these major marathons in the cities, like you can win hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you're like very poor, I mean, that's going to be a big draw for you. You can support your entire extended family just by mm. winning a marathon. Mm. <laughs> by doing what you love. Yeah. And what you were born to do. I have one more quote from the book about uh, this idea of distance running. And um, they talk about how distance running at, at its evolutionary best is much more than instinct, strength, and stamina. It's a blend of strategy and skill, 
perfected during millions of years of do or die decisions. Human distant runners de demands a brain body connection that no other creature is capable of. And it's a lost art. Interesting. So I don't know about us Americans or Canadians, <laughs> but I think again, you know, just to bring it all back is that you can start slow and start to like build that base that, that maybe our physical bodies have kind of forgot, but that mm -hmm. you can tap into as Tiffany was saying with those shoes or just getting barefoot outside and, um, maybe even just shifting. I know for me, that perspective of like, oh gosh, I couldn't imagine running a hundred miles. Mm -hmm. But if you're in a do or die situation and you got to walk 10 or 15 miles, you better hope that you can mentally do that yeah. if, if it's required of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And if you're going to exercise, if you are a person who believes that exercise is important for your mental and physical health. If you're going to be doing that anyway, why not try, just try barefoot walking or barefoot running sometimes and see, see how you feel doing it. I know that's my experiment going forward. Like why run in running shoes when you can run in barefoot shoes or run barefoot? Or even just, you know, a cheap pair of sneakers that have a little piece of rubber sole and nothing super fancy. It's going to save you a lot of money in the end. You know, mm -hmm. don't buy the $300 pair of new Nikes that they change every nine months because they want, you know, that corporate share. Go well, to some of these uh, barefoot running shoes can be expensive too. So, <laughs> But there's cheaper models out there. I mean, if all you're looking for is just a basic piece of uh, protection. Like, yeah, protection to keep you from, you know, stepping in dog poo or <laughs> in somebody's spit or stepping on a pebble or something, a sharp pebble. I mean, you know, they still do the job. You don't have to spend over $100 on a pair of fancy barefoot running shoes. Just get some moccasins or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we've covered as much as we can on this topic for this show. Um, we thank you all for listening. If you're interested, the book that I mentioned is called Born to Run, and it's just packed with all kinds of information and a lot of different levels. Uh, very eye-opening and may change your idea about what running really means as well. And um, we are also going to have a pet health segment today. So um, we'll I think it's on arthritis and pets. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we'll play that now. Take it away, Zoya. Welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. If you have an older dog, and particularly a larger breed dog, but not only, you may be facing a possibility of your dog having an arthritis. So this week's segment is going to be dedicated to how to recognize the signs of arthritis in a dog.
And next week, we are going to talk about what you can do in order to improve their lives and how to relieve their pain and discomfort. Watch the following video. Have an awesome week. And don't forget to watch funny video in the end. Goodbye. Hi, my name is Dr. Yuri Burston. I'm a veterinarian in Vancouver, BC, and I'd like to welcome you to my series of practical skills for pet owners. I'm here to talk to you a little bit today about arthritis in dogs. This is again one of those excellent questions that I've been asked uh, in the comments section of my videos, so please keep them coming. Uh, a lot of people are wondering about arthritis in dogs, which is a great question because let's face it, most dogs will get arthritis. In fact, all of us will get arthritis if we're lucky to live long enough. So what is arthritis? Arthritis is a degeneration of cartilage in your joints. And what happens when your cartilage degenerates is it gets inflamed and you feel pain when you try to move, you feel stiff, you feel uncomfortable. And this is something that, like I said, most of us will deal with at some point in our lives. And certainly something most of our dogs will deal with. In particular, large breed dogs. Uh, I have Amber here to help me illustrate. She's a golden retriever getting on in years. And like most dogs that are large breed, and by large breed we mean sort of more than about 20 kilograms, she's got arthritis they almost all have arthritis. And certainly once you get up to the giant breeds, like St. Bernard's, Great Danes, Dobermans, um, they almost invariably develop arthritis fairly early in life. So how can you tell when your dog has arthritis? Probably the most common thing that owners tell me that makes me think about arthritis is that their dog is slowing down. Now, there are many reasons why a dog might slow down later in life, uh, heart disease, splenic disease and arthritis are probably the most common ones. And certainly uh, you shouldn't just look at a dog that suddenly doesn't want to go on walks and say, ah, dog's got arthritis, she'll be all right. Uh, probably not the best thing to do. You have, if your dog's uh, exercise tolerance changes, then you should probably go see a vet. But often, particularly with larger dogs, the underlying issue is arthritis. And what do I mean by reduced exercise tolerance? That's obviously a very technical term. Usually people say, hey, you know, she doesn't like to go on walks anymore. You know, not excited to go on walks or goes on walks but wants to come home sooner than usual. Um, another common thing that I hear from owners is when they say, oh yeah, she just kind of sits down halfway through a walk and doesn't want to walk anymore. Or, um, you know, she just, some days she just doesn't want to go outside. All of those are, are just really broad behavioral signs that kind of makes me think, all right, this dog is either uncomfortable or in pain or is weak. Weakness, pain, why else would a dog not want to go outside, right? And then obviously we can follow up and investigate that and try to figure out exactly why, rule out all of the kind of medical scary disease type things that could cause this and often we end up with, hey, dog has arthritis, not unexpected. The other common thing that people observe uh, in their dogs when they develop arthritis is them being stiff after sleep. So the classical thing I hear is, oh yeah, my dog's a little bit stiff after waking up and, and it's kind of stiffness kind of works out with exercise. Well, this is classical, classical arthritis presentation. Um, the joint's sore after you wake up, you start moving around a little bit, there's increased blood flow to the joint, the uh, lubricating fluid inside the joint gets moved around and reabsorbed a little and you end up with a more comfortable joint after a bit of exercise. So if your dog is starting to look a little stiff after a rest um, and then just warming up into exercise and normal function, probably has early arthritis. And of course, like all diseases, arthritis can be really mild, 
It can also get very severe. It can certainly be an end-of-life issue for many larger dogs because as they lose the ability to walk, they start to lose muscle mass and get weaker, and it can all kind of spin out of control. So that's the quick three-minute uh, video on dog arthritis. Hopefully, it'll help you identify signs of arthritis or in your dog earlier. And certainly, like I said, a lot of the signs that, that point us towards arthritic disease can also be attributed to other things. So you don't want to assume that it's arthritis, but you do want to seek veterinary help if your dog is slowing down, showing reduced excitement about exercise, stiffness after waking up, and then we can help. We can make them feel better. We can get them more active again. We can prevent a lot of the uh, knock-on effects of arthritis and reduced mobility that might add up over time if it's just left ignored. So I hope you find this video useful and thank you very much for watching. Amber is exhausted from all this work she's done, just choosing to lie down. Um, and she'll be back for my next video of how we can prevent or at least mitigate the effects of arthritis. Okay, that was great. Thanks, Zoya. Thanks. Very informative. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening and joining in today. And please like and subscribe to our down show, Objective Health, down below. Down <laughs> below. Thank you, Doug, for the added guidance. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> and we look forward to joining you all again next week. Bye, everybody. Have a wonderful Bye -bye. day. Bye.